excited to be able to open up the Word of God with you guys today and to be able to share with you a little bit about the goodness of God. The goodness of God. Um, when I was trying to think of what, what message to, to prepare uh, for Mother's Day, um, the goodness of God just made a lot of sense. And <laughs> there's a particular passage that I want us to focus on in the scriptures, um, but just to kind of give you a roadmap of where we're going uh, today. Um, we will probably enter various parts of the Bible uh, to talk about the goodness of God. But the passage that I want us to begin with is located in Genesis chapter 50. Uh, Genesis chapter 50. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, or if you're joining us online and you have your Bible uh, next to you on the couch, uh, please feel free to go ahead and find your place there. Uh, now I understand that it's um, Mother's Day, and I told you I was preaching out of Genesis 50, and if you know your Bible, uh, Genesis 50 uh, is regarding the life of Joseph. Um, so it's Mother's Day, and I told you that I'm going to be preaching about a prominent male character in the Bible named Joseph. Not exactly the Mother's Day sermon you were probably expecting to hear. Um, I get it. I get it. However, uh, what I want to challenge you to do is rather than focusing on the human character in the story, I would like to direct your attention to the God of the Bible. Um, the God who is supremely good, kids. He's good. So in that spirit, let us begin our study today. So first, I want to give you a little bit of background information on the life of Joseph, and then we will jump into the text in Genesis uh, chapter 50. So Joseph grew up in the land of Canaan. He lived among his brothers, um, but his father Jacob, while he was growing up, showed him a lot of favoritism, which made his brothers jealous. And when Joseph was a teenager, he was actually sold into slavery by his brothers. They actually wanted to, to kill him first, but then uh, one of them convinced the others to, to save his life and to simply uh, throw him in a pit and then sell him to slave traders. Um, but Joseph's brothers told his dad, Jacob, um, he'd been torn apart by a wild beast. They said, hey, an animal came and attacked him and he was killed. And Jacob, who's Joseph's father, he, he of course was devastated. He was devastated, um, as any parent would be over the perceived loss of a child. It, and in reality, what happened is Joseph was actually taken to Egypt by the slave traders. Um, in Egypt, he was sold as a slave to a guy named Potiphar. And Potiphar happened to be the captain of the guard of Pharaoh, who's the king and leader of Egypt. But God was with Joseph. And God blessed Joseph in all the service that he did in Potiphar's house. And so Joseph actually becomes very successful in Egypt, and Potiphar ends up making him responsible for everything in his command. But Joseph was falsely accused of committing a crime that he did not do while serving in Potiphar's house, and therefore he was thrown into prison. And you might be imagining, where else can this story go? <laughs> but what you need to hear is that God's goodness continued to run after Joseph even while he's in prison. And he actually, because God blessed him, he was led to be placed in charge of all the prisoners in the prison. So he was like chief prisoner in the prison. And then God gives him the ability to interpret dreams. God began to tell him what the proper interpretation of dreams were. Why is this important? Well, eventually, this catches the attention of none other than Pharaoh, king of Egypt, because as God would plan it, Pharaoh happened to be having some pretty strange dreams 
about an upcoming famine in the land that he didn't even know what they meant. So because Pharaoh could not understand those dreams, he needed an interpreter. And Joseph was then summoned up from the prison, brought up, put before Pharaoh, and was asked to relay and interpret the dream to Pharaoh. And that dream, once Pharaoh understood what it meant, because God gave Joseph the interpretation to give to him, once that happened, Pharaoh became very, very aware of the upcoming famine in the land. And so Pharaoh becomes very pleased with Joseph, and he places him in charge of all the land of Egypt, where he begins making plans and leading people to save back a portion from the land, a portion of all the crops from the land every year until the famine struck. And because of Joseph's leadership and planning and the wisdom that God gave him, we see that Egypt and the world were actually saved during the famine. And even Joseph's brothers and eventually his whole family came to Egypt to buy food during the famine. Because again, it was a famine. There was no food in the world except in Egypt. And so they, they come down there, they arrive, and Joseph encounters his brothers. Now remember, this isn't a big happy family reunion. These are the brothers that sold him into slavery many years before when he was a teenager. Now he's a grown man. And so he, he reunites with them, he encounters them, and he actually does something amazing. Joseph graciously forgives his brothers when he sees them in Egypt for what they had done to him. But then something happened that leads us up to the passage we're going to talk about today. Joseph's father, Jacob, dies. He passes away. He's an old, he's an old man by this time. He passes away. And after Jacob's death, fear comes into the hearts of all of Joseph's brothers. Because they have this fear that's probably been there for a long time, kind of in the back of their head, that perhaps now that his dad's not around anymore, maybe he'll pay them back for what they did to him, for the wrong that they did him when he was younger. And so let's read in Genesis 15, or sorry, Genesis 50, starting in verse 15, um, and, and we'll see kind of how the story wraps up, and then we'll talk about the goodness of God. So Genesis 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also all came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. In verse 20, Joseph says something phenomenal given his story. He tells his brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery and potentially tried to ruin his entire life by worldly standards. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And the first main point that I want you to see today, you came to church today, first main point, God is good. God is good. Look in this story at how God blesses his people, how he preserves them in this story. 
I mean, you can even look at how he blesses people that aren't his people, people that don't know him as Lord and God. Um, the Egyptians, for example, he blesses the Egyptians, and they don't even know him as Lord and God, right? They, they, they have their own gods that they worship. Um, back in that day, Pharaoh was considered also divine. And so God continues to bless them as well. He provides food for them. And God's goodness follows Joseph in his life in such a way that Joseph, when he's given the opportunity to either repay his brothers for what they did um, uh, to him with evil, so he could repay them with evil, or he could forgive them, he had a choice to make, he graciously forgives them. And if we want to go a little further, we can see here in the text that Joseph actually declares everything that's happened to him, he says that was all part of God's plan for good. And so church, the question I have for you, do we always see God's plan in this way? Do we always see God's plan as good? And if not, what are some of the things that prevent us from seeing the goodness of God? That's a question that you can take with you after you leave here this afternoon. What are some things that prevent us from seeing the goodness of God? I have a couple ideas. Sometimes I think our own sin gets in the way. I think our own sin gets in the way and it blinds us to see God's goodness. Sometimes I think we easily get distracted with the things of the world. We get busy with our day-to-day -day and we, our, our eyes catch attention of other things and we just take God's goodness for granted. Sometimes, church, I think we get solely focused on the negative. Um, if, you, if you've ever uh, maybe met people like this or, may, or maybe you raise your hand and say, nope, I'm that person who's always kind of thinking the worst or, or looking at kind of the bad side of a situation, right? Maybe, maybe your glass is always half empty. Um, sometimes you might forget to praise God for the good things that he gives you. And sometimes flat out, if we're honest, we just don't believe God is good. But think about Joseph. God's goodness had such a profound impact on Joseph that he was able to be a vessel of God's goodness to other people. Maybe you know somebody like this. People who are so affected by the goodness of God that their lives actually overflow with God's goodness to other people? Or maybe you're saying, you know what, that's the kind of person that, that I would like to be known as. I would like to be known as somebody like that. Um, I think we need to always remind ourselves of the goodness of God. And one of the best ways I can think to do that is to meditate on scriptures that talk about God's goodness. And one of those scriptures is the one we read today, Genesis 50, 20, right? What you meant for evil, God intended for good, right? Um, Maybe you're more of a musically-minded person, and frankly, even if you're not a musician or a singer, most of us are musically-minded. You can remember all the words of the songs that, that we just sung on Tuesday. You will not remember all the words of this sermon. <laughs> I know you won't. It's okay. I'm not offended. It's fine. Um, but, maybe, but maybe you understand this. Uh, there's actually a song. Uh, there's a worship song called Sea of Victory. It's by the artist Elevation Worship, and it has lyrics that are based on Genesis 50:20. And it says, you take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good, you turn it for good. Which leads me to the second point, the second truth that, that I want to give to you today. God's plans are good. So point number one is God is good. You can see this is pretty simple where we're going today. <laughs> point number one, God is good. Point number two, God's plans are good. Now, I get it. It's common in church for us to talk about or speak about or share about God's goodness. I get it. But sometimes in the day-to-day -day moments of our lives, if we're honest, we have a hard time seeing 
how God's goodness is working out in our lives. It's easy on Sunday when you come in and you say, God is good, God is good. Hey, pastor, God's good. Hey, friend, God's good. Hey, brother, hey, sister, God's good. But then it's Tuesday. And, and something happens in our lives. And all of a sudden, that becomes much harder to say or think or believe. And so I want to give you three examples of women of faith in the Bible um, to encourage you today. Three examples of women of faith in the Bible to encourage you today. Uh, l listen to the very, very brief version of these stories of God's goodness and God's plans for good. First, starting in the book of Esther in the Old Testament. God works through a Hebrew woman in, in, in the book of Esther. Her name is Esther. And she risked her life to save her people from a murderous plan that's carried out by one of the king's servants. And the way that she does that is she actually has to go and approach the king in his chamber. And back in that day, in that society, if you went to see the king and the king had not given you permission to go see the king, and the king didn't want you to come see him, the penalty was death. So she risked her life believing in the goodness of God. She knew her God was good, and she knew that, it, that, that his plans were good, and she knew that if she was going to expose a murderous plot that was going to destroy her people, she would have to be bold and go and step before the king, believing in God's goodness. What a woman of faith we can look to, right, when we have doubts about how good God's plan is. And in the end of that story, God's people are saved, and God's goodness is proclaimed by all throughout the land, right? They, they have a huge feast and a holiday that lasts for days and days and days. Um, let's move forward. Book of Ruth in the Old Testament. In the book of Ruth, we see, because again, we can read it from start to finish. Try to picture yourself as the character in the story. We know how the story starts and how it ends, but try to picture this as Ruth. If you're Ruth, then God had a good plan for you. And that plan actually included her losing her husband and moving to a new country. Now, when we hear that, we don't hear, hey, that's a great plan. Um, we hear, gosh, like... She, she, she lost her husband, and she has, to, she has to move to a new country. But God's good plan, that resulted her in becoming one of God's people. And God's good plan included her remarrying a man named Boaz. And if you know the story of Ruth, um, you know that, that, that her and Boaz get married, and they have kids, and their kids have kids. And eventually, Ruth becomes great-grandmother of King David of Israel. And if you look through your Old Testament genealogy, and I know I'm getting in the weeds here, um, you see that Ruth becomes part of the line leading down to the birth of Christ, of Jesus Christ, our Savior. God's plan for Ruth was indeed good, even if Ruth could not see that goodness in every moment. But we give, but, but we give Ruth a lot of credit, rightly so, because the whole way through the story, she's trusting in the goodness of God, and she's trusting in the goodness of God's plan even though it's, it's leading to loss in her life and it's taking her to places um, that, 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 are, that are foreign to her. She trusted in God's goodness and the goodness of his plan. In the New Testament, we see God's plan for good play out in the life of Mary, Jesus' mother. But let me tell you, that plan did not always look so good. Mary was a young woman who had become pregnant before she was officially married to Joseph, the man who was to be her husband. And in that culture, in that time, there would have been great shame heaped on Mary for this. But God, in his goodness, because he's a good God, he sends an angel to Mary to comfort her. And these are the words that the angel gives. The angel says, the Lord is with you. Luke 1.28. The angel says, the Lord's with you, Mary. 
And although she did not have all the answers, although she didn't know how everything was going to work out, Mary trusts in the Lord from the beginning. And how do we know that? She actually says, she says, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So these women of faith, they knew deep down, they were deeply rooted. They had a deep-rooted understanding of who God was, that he was good and that his plans are good. And they knew that his plans were good for them too. So how about us? What do we do? And these are things to, to think about and take with you. What do we do when maybe the relationship ends or the career path gets derailed or the friendship fades? Or what do we do when the family member passes away? Or what do we do when the contract falls through? What do we do when the phone call that you're waiting on doesn't come? What do the scriptures say about God's goodness in those moments. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, there's a verse, perhaps this is a familiar verse to you, perhaps you've heard it a million times, I hope you hear it differently today. Romans 8, 28, maybe you have this on a coffee mug at home. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I'm going to read it again, because it's a familiar verse, we probably need to hear it again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, I did a little digging. In the original Greek, and I understand half the room fell asleep when I said that, in the original Greek, I get that. Um, in the original Greek, the phrase all things, again, um, all things work together for good, the phrase all things comes from the root word pas, which means all, right, or all things. So when Paul intended to write that God's working all things together for good, Paul intended to write that God's working all things together for good. And when he means all things, he means all things. All. A-L-L. -L, every one of them. All things, church, we need to hear this. All things include the bad things. The things that we see as bad. All things include the bad things. Remember Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And so church, this means that even the bad things in your life, as painful as they are, as hard as they are, as long as they seem to take to endure, God promises to work all of those things together for good. And one Bible scholar said it really well, so I'll read a quote um, here. It says, the things themselves may not be good, but God harmonizes them together for the believer's ultimate good. Because his goal, God's goal, is to bring them to perfection in his presence. In fact, one of the fathers of the Protestant Reformation, uh, a guy named Martin Luther, he said, the spirit makes all things even though they are evil, work together for good. And so note here, it's important to understand that the things themselves don't automatically work together for good. If you have a bunch of bad things happen, it doesn't mean that you go poof, okay, all right, now they're all good. That's not, that's not what we're saying. But what you have to see here is that God in his goodness is the one who's working them together He's taking the good things and the bad things, all the things that happen in our lives. 
God is working those together for good. That's God's work. It's what he does. And it comes from his goodness. Because God is good, his plans are good. And because God is good, the things that he works together turn out good. Church, God's plans are good. And they're good because God's good. And so before we move into our last point, I, I, I just want to point something out about um, the promise in Romans 8.28. It's a promise for everybody who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But it's not a promise for those outside of, of Christ. So let, so let me speak first to the Christian. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you've turned away from your sin and you've placed your faith in him, the promise of Romans 8.28 that he is working all things together for good applies to you. You can rest in that. You can rejoice in that. You can worship in that. You can celebrate in that. But if you're not a believer of Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're outside of Christ, then perhaps today's the day you might consider giving your life over to Jesus in light of what you're hearing today about his goodness. And so if that's you, I want to now show you why our God's the one in whom you should trust. Point number three, we can trust our good God. We can trust our good God. And so let me show you, Christian and non-Christian, let me show you what the Bible says about God's goodness and about how God's goodness flows out from himself and into the lives of those who trust him. Sounds like good news, right? Like we want to hear this. We're going to go all the way to the book of Nahum in the Old Testament. Now, when you came in from Mother's Day, you weren't expecting to hear anything from the book of Nahum. But we're going Nahum uh, 1.7. It says this. It says, um, just listen to this verse. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. I want you to hear that again. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So here, God is actually described as good in the sense that he's faithful and he's merciful to his people. Especially faithful and merciful in times where others betray and show no mercy. God is a protector. He's a refuge for those who are in trouble. He's a safe haven, if you will. God is helpful and caring. He cares about us. He cares about his people. He loves us with a love that we can't even imagine. As you think about a love on Mother's Day, try to multiply that out to, to an infinite degree, and you still won't touch the, the, the level of love that God has for you. Also, Lamentations uh, 3.25 says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him to the soul who seeks him. The Lord is good for those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. And so God does not forget to be good to the person who seeks him. God's not forgetful. He doesn't forget anything. He certainly doesn't forget to be good. It's part of his character. It's who he is. And also, because this is, this is very different, this is one of the, the big areas where God is very different than us, God does not grow tired of being good because it's who he is. He does not grow tired of being good. He's good to us the entire time we're waiting for him, the entire time we're seeking for him. Um, 
I heard, I heard somebody say once, the waiting that we do when we wait on the Lord, that's not just passive. We don't just kind of like sit back with our arms crossed and our feet up and just wait on the Lord. It's instead an active resting in the goodness of God. Waiting on the Lord is an active resting in the goodness of God. And you see, this is really only possible to do, I mean, I, I mean, I mean we're only capable of doing this if we truly believe that our God is a good God, a perfectly good God. And only if we believe that his plans are good for us as well. And finally, church, we see God's goodness most clearly displayed in the cross of Christ. Maybe you know the story of Jesus. Maybe you know the story of the cross. Maybe you don't. But the scriptures say that Jesus Christ, who never sinned, took on the wrath of God in our place when he went to the cross. The scriptures say he paid the penalty for our sin, and it says that he satisfied the wrath of God so that we could be spared. This is how good God is. Listen to Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. Listen to this. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What this verse says is that, okay, in reality, and I think this is true probably in this room too, in reality, most people are not open to giving up their life for somebody else in general, generally speaking. Um, most of us are not just open to that. But if the person that you, know, you're, that you might consider giving up your life for seems to be good, then, well, maybe, 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 right? Uh, maybe we give up our life for them. But then what the scriptures say is really shocking. It says, what God did for us goes off the charts. <laughs> He's so good that he gave up his son Jesus while we were still actively sinning and running away from him. We were actively running away from him, against him, and that's the moment that he dies for us, right? He gives up his life in our place. And church, since it's Mother's Day, I also want to mention one more thing. Um, Jesus' care for his mother while he's on the cross. So when Jesus is on the cross, there's, there's people around watching. Um, one, one of those people is, is his mother, Mary, and then another is one of his disciples. And um, it's recorded in, in the Gospel of John. Uh, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Church, when Jesus was in the midst of suffering, his goodness shone through in the care and concern for his mother. And Jesus made sure his mother was going to be cared for, even when he knew he would die on the cross soon after. Church, if Jesus, when he suffered like that, if Jesus, when he suffered like that, if he could extend his goodness to others, how much more now today can he extend his goodness to you that he is exalted at the right hand of God? He's in heaven now, exalted at the right hand of God. He's risen. We celebrate that on Easter. We celebrate it every day as a Christ follower. Um, how much more can he extend his goodness to you now? Church, we can trust our good God. We can trust him.